Welcome back to Reality Asserts Itself. I'm Paul J. And this is The Analysis. When I arranged an interview with Ambassador Joe Wilson, he said we better do it sooner than later. You told me that you're dying. Mm-hmm. Joe was very ill and didn't expect to live more than a few months. It's not so much as facing my mortality as getting ready to take that next step. In spite of that, he felt compelled to do the interview. He was extremely concerned that the same distortions and lies that led to the Iraq war were playing out again, this time targeting Iran. Soleimani was plotting imminent and sinister attacks. He wanted to speak out against another illegal and more cataclysmic war. We will regret uh, every moment uh, that we're in there. Ambassador Wilson was a career diplomat for 22 years, from 1976 to 1998. He started his career in Niger, a country he would return to in 2002 on a mission for the CIA that would change his life forever. From 1988 to 1991, he was Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, Iraq. And for his efforts there, President George H.W. Bush called him a true American hero. His 2002 mission to Niger to investigate a possible Iraqi purchase of yellow cake uranium led him to find that such a transaction had not taken place, and he reported as much to the CIA. 500 tons of yellow cake is not an off-the-book-sized transaction. According to the New York Times, Wilson told the CIA and the State Department that, quote, the information was unequivocally wrong and that the documents had been forged. This did not stop President Bush from stating what's come to be known as the infamous 16 words in his 2003 State of the Union. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. This led Wilson to write a New York Times op-ed in 2003 titled, What I Didn't Find in Africa, where he stated that, quote, some of the intelligence related to Iraq's nuclear weapons program was twisted to exaggerate the Iraqi threat. This uh, Joe Wilson was questioning our intelligence in the New York Times. The op-ed infuriated Vice President Dick Cheney, as depicted in the movie Vice. <clears throat> What's his wife's name again? In an act of retribution, it's generally accepted that Cheney's office leaked information to Washington Post columnist Robert Novak that Wilson's wife, Valerie Plame, was a CIA operative. This became a major scandal known as the Plamegate Affair. My name is everywhere, my real name. And was depicted in the movie Fair Game. Sean Penn played Wilson. While Ambassador Wilson and I didn't agree on everything, especially when we argued in one of the interview segments about the first Gulf War, where Joe had been involved as a diplomat. You're someone who has advocated this shouldn't be the first response. And it wasn't. Still, I think Wilson represents an important voice from the professional diplomatic community, many of whom see the foreign policy of the neocons and militarists in both major parties as dangerous to the U.S. and the world. I met with the ambassador in New Mexico, where he was then living, in May of 2019. 
What follows is the last interview before Joe Wilson's death on September 27th, 2019. First of all, thanks very much for doing this. Welcome to Santa Fe. It's a little bit of paradise. So as viewers who watch Reality Asserts Itself know, we usually start with a biographical segment. Uh, But given what's happening in the build of the arms around Iran right now, and how much this seems to be a repetition of much of what led up to the war in Iraq. Uh, Given the urgency, I thought we should start with where we are now and how we got here. And uh, and then the following segments, we'll do more of the biographical. Uh, So you wrote in in your book about the danger of what amounts to a neoconservative conspiracy. You talk about actual cells uh, being formed and being placed in different parts of government. Uh, people being recruited into it. Um, And you mentioned specifically the Project for New American Century and the document that came out, which was sort of this whole vision of uh, a single superpower world that no longer has to pay any attention to international law. Uh, Talk about how that, what the role that force played in terms of the Iraq war and what it might mean in terms of what's happening now with Iran. Sure. Well, the neoconservatives um, are a force that have been in, in the American foreign policy debate for as long as I've been in there. Uh, they basically got their start, um, as far as I can tell, in uh, the mid-70s when George Herbert Walker Bush was head of the CIA. And they were able to come up with, concoct this idea of a Team B to go in and reassess the agency's um, intelligence on the Soviets and where they were going. And then since then, they're just like the spawn of the devil. They have just spread everywhere. What, what does that mean, Team B? What was it supposed Pardon? to do? What was Team B supposed to do? Team B was supposed to reassess, go back and look at all the intelligence and reassess whether the intelligence agencies had the correct assessment on Soviet capabilities. So they came up with sort of a separate uh, assessment of how strong the Soviet Union was at that time which was different from, and incorrect as it turns out, from what the intelligence community and its professionals had judged over the, over the years and over the decades. But they, that got them into government. That got them into the, sort of the politics. And, and Team B, in your mind, exaggerated the Soviets. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. And they were absolutely wrong. And you can go back and you take a look at the record on that. A lot of them came out, interestingly, out of... Um, out of Scoop Jackson's office when he was senator from Washington. That was their, that was their sort of place to sit on the Hill. Um, Pat Moynihan had a couple of them in his office. And then they've been kind of in and around the U.S. government of various think tanks ever since. And during the time that we, we, we did the debate on the, um, on the Iraq war, and I knew all these guys, by the way, because they were all involved in the Gulf War. Who are some of the names? Uh, well, uh, Richard Pearl, Paul Wolfowitz, um, uh, Doug Fyth, uh, John Bolton, uh, the guy who used to run the CIA, uh, whose name escapes me, um, <clears throat> um, uh, guy who ran the um, Office of Special Plans at the Pentagon, whose I think his name was Schultz. They all sort of came out of the University of Chicago, um, Albert Wolstetter and, and a couple of his acolytes, and I can't remember the guy who was, uh, who was sort of the godfather of them all. But they were... They were a force to be reckoned with. I knew them all from the Gulf War, um, and they loved me then. You know, after all, I was the guy who was confronting Saddam Hussein. So when I came back, uh, 
one of the first nights I was back in town, I was having dinner with uh, Pearl and Wolfowitz at, at Pearl's house. And if you know anything about Richard Pearl, um, quite apart from his uh, rather um, interesting views on, on international relations, he's also a pretty well-known cook. So he cooked a pretty nice dinner for me when I and in the, in the Iraq war, if I had taken a different position, I think they would have loved to have had me to be the uh, poster child of the American return to Baghdad. I could have easily been Jerry Bremer if I'd taken a different position, but, uh, but I didn't. I stood up for what I believed in at the time and still believe in. Which was opposing the invasion. Which was, um, my, my position on the Iraq war was, was, I think, a little bit more subtle than just opposing the invasion. The case I tried to make was, um, if you're going to make this invasion, there's got to be a strategic rationale for it. We've got to figure out exactly why we're going to launch this war against a sovereign nation. And it can't be just because we don't like him. Um, it's got to be because he poses a real threat to us. And so you've got to demonstrate to me and to everybody else what that threat is in such a way that I understand. And if you go back to the Project for New American Century documents, it's not about the threat, it's about what you say in this interview with the PBS Frontline. It's about reshaping the Middle East as we like and use force to do it. A very aggressive militaristic policy will send our army anywhere to pursue the political objectives we've decided upon. And it, it literally is, as Max Boot uh, wrote in one of his more infamous articles. It really is uh, this idea that somehow we can project jodhpurs and pith helmets across the world. Old 19th century imperialism. A 19th century imperialism. That didn't end very well for the Brits. It didn't end very well for the Russians. And it's not ending very well for the Americans. And, um, and that's really one of the points I tried to make. And it's a point I would continue to make, that we really need to show some maturity and restraint in our um, approach to relations with other peoples, other cultures, and other nations. Talk more about this idea of actually creating cells that they put into different elements of the state, different parts of the state. Well, you can, you, you can see it even to, to today where they, where they basically sprinkle their acolytes into various departments. So you had John Bolton over the State Department. Uh, you had uh, Fife and Wolfowitz over defense. Um, and they outflanked uh, the rationalists or the realists in the, in the foreign policy world. Uh, they were always there. They're always pushing their agenda. And you can see it now as they're pushing their agenda. And their way, their way into the process was Cheney. He was like the godfather of all of them. And it's not clear to me. I kind of think Cheney was essentially a hack. And they made Cheney. Um, there are others who would say that... Uh, that he rode them to where he ended up. But at the end of the day, I don't think Dick Cheney was all that smart. Um, and I think he was just basically a, uh, a political guy who got used by these guys. And, um, and he allowed them to shape the direction of, uh, of American international policy uh, to uh, the great detriment of our moral authority, our international leadership, our ability to really shape the environment around us. Um, and obviously the repercussions are, are, uh, are more than evident today uh, with this clown we have in the White House and, and, uh, and the people around him. And 
you know, Elliot Abrams is back running Venezuelan policy. I've known Abrams since, uh, since uh, 1981 when he came in with Reagan. And these guys are just, are just bad actors. They have an agenda that is different from the agenda that most Americans understand as our foreign policy priorities and our foreign policy responsibilities. And that agenda is? That agenda is very militaristic. It is really to put our jodhpurs and, and pith helmets around the world. And it is really just to um, impose our will um, without really understanding that in the real world, the world outside of Washington, you don't impose your will. You sort of negotiate uh, for whatever advantage or mutual advantage you can get. The, um, the best Secretary of State I ever worked for was, uh, was Jim Baker. And Jim Baker would never go into a meeting without fully understanding what the other side needed to get out of that meeting alive. We don't go into meetings concerned about what the other side, how the other side gets outside alive. Uh, we go into these meetings um, with, the, with the distinct objective of imposing our will whether we can impose our will um, on our interlocutors or not, and whether or not we can do so in a way that makes us both happy at the end of the meeting, or whether we just put our thumb or our, ne our, our boot on their neck. The, uh, going back again to this neocon vision, uh, most of it's in that project for New American Century documents. To a large extent, Iraq seemed to be a step towards Iran, and it really always seemed to be about Iran, although now it also seems to be really about China, even Iran, uh, in terms of if you're going to have global hegemony and if you're going to control Middle East oil, you got to deal with Iran. But other than that, why are they so fixated on, on bringing down the Iranian government? Well, Michael Ledeen, who's one of the, one of the leaders of the neoconservative movement, once said, uh, uh, boys go to Iraq, real men go to Iran. And um, they've always been fixated on it. I think they're, they're, the reasons are, are really rather simple to understand. Um, a lot of it has to do with ensuring Israeli security. And um, Hezbollah is financed and supported by Iran. Uh, Syria, has, there's a huge Iranian influence in Syria. So Iran has kind of emerged as the big bogeyman. Uh, to uh, Israel and its sense of, of security. And, and we have bought into that in ways that are, I think, um, I think not just threaten our relationship in the region, our relationships in the region, but threaten our relationship with, with the other great powers with whom we negotiated the, uh, the Iran uh, agreement, the JCPOA. Uh, we find ourselves um, in trying to isolate Iran, we're finding ourselves increasingly isolated, and it just makes no sense. Uh, you know, the, the hypocrisy of the uh, quote-unquote moral argument, when they make these uh, uh, critiques of Iran, much of which is true, but then ally with Saudi Arabia, which is far more uh, a sponsor of terrorism than anything Iran's done, uh, at the same time, the media hardly parses this at all. Uh, the, and, and, and sections of the leadership of the Democratic Party are on the same page, Chuck Schumer. Uh, there's a lot of gathering forces to bring down the Iranian government. 
If you want to understand the Middle East, you don't read the American press to understand it. Uh, you, meet, you read the uh, press in the region. Um, there is a, a built-in uh, bias. Um, and um, I don't know when or how we get over it. All I know is that uh, is if we send our troops into Iran, it's going to be a really messy piece of business. And we will regret uh, every moment uh, that we're in there. It seems the strategy is you know, create maximum psychological pressure, economic warfare against Iran, hope for civil war, destabilization of Iran, uh, which, which seems to me leads to one of two things, either accidental uh, breakout of real war between the United States and Iran, and or if the theocracy in, in Iran is really threatened with such complete chaos, uh, they don't go peacefully into the night. Uh. No, there's, um, you know, there is um, in the Middle East, there, there was at least a residue of, of goodwill towards Americans in the United States. Um, that clearly has eroded to, to a, um, a dangerous point in Iran. I think even as recently as maybe five or six years ago, as recently as when we signed the agreement, uh, the people-to-people -people relationship with the Iranian people had, had every opportunity to flower. I think that's gone now. And I think you're absolutely right. They, they, uh, they will defend themselves just as we would if we were invaded. And um, anybody who thinks that... Um, that driving into Tehran, we're going to be met with, uh, with kids and flowers and whatever Cheney said we were going to met, be met with in Baghdad. Uh, um, they ought to be thinking about what it would be like if, uh, if, um, if uh, foreign troops were invading New York City or Washington, D.C. and how we would feel. And that's where we are. And it's just... Um, it's not the way that you want to manage international relations in an increasingly small globe uh, populated by more and more people who need to figure out how to get along in this time of climate change and all the other issues that we face as a, um, as a species. The, uh, when you listen to the Israeli intelligence and military security establishment, Many of them have come out and said Iran is not an existential threat to Israel. You know, Netanyahu loves having an existential threat to point to, especially as he's facing corruption charges, uh, but also trying to gather as much uh, nationalist fervor to get reelected over and over again. But in some ways, the, the, even the more driving force seems to be the Saudis. Uh, what, it, what is this, the way the Trump administration and the neocons seem, on the whole, mostly so uh, in alliance with the Saudi uh, monarchy? Talk about what you know about that. Look, I've, I've, um, I know the Saudis pretty well. Um, I've never served there, but I've been there. And, and, uh, and again, I guess what I would say is if you want to understand the region's politics, you've got to read the the what the Middle East is saying about it. So when the Israelis are talking about Iran not being a problem, take that on board. Our relationship with the Saudis is outmoded and outdated and should have been modified um, a generation ago. Um, but, you know, these relations end up being what they are. They're, they're, 
they become sort of settled. They become the way we do with, deal with it. And we had some reason for many years to, you know, depend on Saudi oil. We don't have that. I don't have to do that anymore. Um, there's no reason for us to be in the middle of their uh, 600-year squabble uh, between the Sunni and the Shia, other than to use our our um, our our, um, our sort of diplomacy to uh, try and get them to come to some sort of ecumenical peace, uh, so that they're not, in fact, um, they're not going to in fact blow up the world over who is the rightful heir to Muhammad. So how dangerous is this moment? Big built military buildup around Iran. Uh, the war of words at quite a fever pitch. I, I would say the chances of a major conflagration somewhere around the world in the next uh, 20 months is, is pretty high. Um, and I think the most serious of the threats that are posed are, are those in the Middle East and in Iran. Last night at my direction, the United States military successfully executed a flawless precision strike that killed the number one terrorist anywhere in the world, Qasem Soleimani. Kind of puts us so firmly with the Saudis against the, against the, uh, the Shia side of the Gulf. Uh, I just think um, um, it's not in our interest. It's certainly not in the world's interest. And, and, and again, I think um, if you think it's going to be a cakewalk, it's not. It's not. Uh, the last time that I can recall that we did a war plan uh, where we confronted Iranian troops in the Straits of Hormuz, uh, they had to cancel uh, the war game because the Marine general who was running the Iranian side of the war game basically destroyed the American fleet in a matter of hours, twice. And they finally canceled the war game because they were just so embarrassed that it might become public. And it's, it's just not going to be... It will disrupt uh, oil supplies. It will pit us against um, against um, uh, the most radical forces within the Iranian regime because they will hold forth. Um, it's not the moderates who ever rise to the top in times of war and peace. It's always the, the most zealous. Um, I used to say in that, uh, <clears throat> that in that part of the world, um, the moderates go out on Saturday and play golf, but the zealots are, are still plotting. And, um, and, that's, um, and that's what we need to worry about. We need to be encouraging the moderates and, um, and not giving the zealots their place in the sun. How much does this feel to you like the lead up to Iraq? And particularly, I mean, there were so many voices in the days before the invasion of Iraq that said this is crazy you know, and this is going to turn into chaos and what was predicted came to be but they went in anyway. There and were not that many voices. I was there. I don't mean inside the administration, yeah. I mean outside. Yeah, there were no, even outside, there were not that many voices. It was a juggernaut. It was a neoconservative juggernaut. Um, if you go back and you look at the debate uh, you'll see maybe a half a dozen people who had who had real standing to talk about these issues, and on the other side, you had everybody from uh, 
from the neocons. You're talking about the debate within the Beltway. Within the debate, within the national debate, within the education of the American public about what was intended. There were not that many who were saying this is not a good idea. Well, there are millions of people hit the streets. They all know it, yes. But there were not that many people who had standing in the debate. Yes, there were a lot of people who said war is a bad idea. But there were not a lot of people who could tell you why with the same sort of precision that General Scowcroft or myself or Tony Zinni could. Um, there were not very many of us who... who, who um, who were in that in that rather exalted position where you could you could be on all the talk shows you could and it, and for the neocons it wasn't much of a debate in the sense that they had an agenda and they were imposing it and is that what's happening again um yes and they have a president who is even more compliant than president bush was in those days um and they have a team that's pushing the agenda as quickly as they can. Um, and again, we come up on an election year and, and you know, the first six months of any war, you've got to support the president. Nothing so like a wartime president. It's, uh, it's wag the dog. It's really is, uh, it's, I think we're looking at a really bad situation. I, I would liken it less to um, the Iraq War in 2003 and more to the guns of August and the couple of years leading up to World War I because there is no real uh, international moral authority. Our president is a clown. There's nobody in Europe who, who has any particular standing, particularly now that Ms. Merkel is, is retiring. Um, this is a drift to something that could be really, really... Um, dangerous and deadly. All right. We're going to continue our interview with Joe Wilson on Reality Asserts Itself. Mm -hmm.